it's been one of those things that, you know, there's been a lot of hair on fire coverage about test scores, but there are no good test scores if there are 30 to 40 or 50% of kids missing at least 10% of days in the school. That's just not possible, right? And so uh, through that, I, I did a lot of coverage about how this is this is what our hair really should be on fire, about uh, chronic absenteeism. Um, and so that included stories about how it's really bad with the youngest kids, which is especially concerning because at, in those years, they're building kind of the foundations of, of their knowledge base that, that will they will go on to use for the rest of their lives. Um, and I did stories about how, like with most things in education, um, chronic absenteeism isn't distributed equally. Students who have the least, the communities that have the least, who are often the most poor, frankly, are, are the ones who are most affected by chronic absenteeism. Welcome to the Superintendent's Hangout, where we discuss topics in education, charter schools, life in general, and not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Dr. Sharetta. Come on in and hang out. In this episode, I was privileged to sit down with Jacob McWinney. Jacob is the education reporter for The Voice of San Diego, whose mission is, quote, investigative journalism for better San Diego. Voice of San Diego was founded in 2005 and at the time was the first digital nonprofit news organization in the country to serve a local community. Its founders felt that the region desperately needed more reporting, analysis, and journalistic competition. Jacob talks about his circuitous route to becoming a journalist, qualities that he thinks are vital and critical for a journalist to have in order to fill the commitment of the profession and make the world a better place. Jacob and I also talk about and touched on some of the topics that he's ported on, such as chronic absenteeism, homelessness, the impact of COVID on academic achievement, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting down for a conversation with Jacob McWinney. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you very much for coming and joining us this morning for a little bit. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, David. I was wondering if we could start with your origin story. It's important to understand history and where we come from and a little bit about who we are before we talk about the present. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I have a little bit of a, of a circuitous uh, origin story. Um, you know, before the pandemic, I never imagined that I would be doing journalism. Um, I spent about a decade after high school um, just kind of occasionally attending community college and, uh, and playing music. Uh, that was kind of my big passion for, for many years. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I lost both my part-time jobs over one weekend and really upended everything. And I sat around for a while just trying to figure out what's next. I mean, in those early days, everything felt, felt very temporary you know, like we'd be back after a brief intermission kind of vibe. Um, but very quickly, it, it became clear that this was an opportunity to kind of refocus and find something else that felt more sustainable and felt more, um, you know, intellectually and emotionally rewarding than, than music had felt for a while. Um, and so I went back to school, I went back to City College and kind of bounced around in a couple different classes is trying to knock off prerequisites to to eventually transfer and get a bachelor's degree that I, I, I had never gotten yet um, and ended up taking a journalism class as a prerequisite and and just kind of everything clicked you know I'd always loved writing that was what I was uh, you know really interested in when I went to 
community college originally, uh, fiction, poetry, all that kind of stuff. Just love to tell a story. And this kind of felt like a way to to tell a story that, that had real-world impact, um, an immediate real-world impact. And, you know, from, from there, uh, things happened very quickly. Got an internship at Voice of San Diego. Um, and shortly after the internship ended, they, they hired me full-time to report on education. So it's been <laughs> quite a, a journey. Um, you know, my first story published um, at, at uh, City College's news site, City Times, in, in what, August of 2020? And so it, it, I, it's quite crazy to be sitting here now talking about my journalism origin story because it, it, it feels like yesterday that the story really kicked off. Had you done writing in high school apart from your academic assignments? Had you been, you went to Helix High School, went to Helix charter school graduate. Uh, did they have a newspaper there? Or how did that look? Did you get involved in journalism or? No, I, I, I never did. You know, I, I, I did a lot of, of fiction writing. Like I said, that was really kind of my passion. And I wrote music. Um, you know, I, I was a songwriter and, and, and lyricist. And I feel like it's interesting how, mu- how many of those skills translate into journalism. I mean, fiction is fairly obvious. You, you tell a story, you right. find ways to make it, make it um, compelling and make it interesting to readers. But when it comes to to music, I also feel that there's a lot of a lot of you know similarities. Trying to find ways to make language musical, to find mm-hmm. ways to ease people through stories that can sometimes be <laughs> very dense or filled with you know jargon. The education world is replete with jargon. Um, or maybe you know bogged down with a lot of statistics that people have to understand. When you're dealing with stories like that, it's really important to find those things that that guide readers through and make it again compelling and make it interesting and, and allow them to feel like they're reading something that's you know moving and, and, and vibrant. So we could go a number of different directions um, from that. I want to. Before we get into the actual writing about education, which is, as you say, kind of a, a unique niche, uh, talk to us about the mission and vision of Voice of San Diego. Um, um, well, I'll let you explain. We had had a yeah. pre-recording conversation about about this, and it intrigued me. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I feel very, very lucky to, to work at Voice, um, you know, the the world of news is is every couple of years it seems like there's this new free fall that happens <laughs> um but but I feel lucky because voice is a is a super interesting and I, and I and I feel thoughtful organization in the way it, it approaches news um so voice for those who don't know is a nonprofit investigative news outlet uh it was founded about almost 20 years ago um, and its goal, uh, its mission statement is investigative journalism for a better San Diego. And that's kind of what we base all of our coverage on. Um, you know, investigative journalism is, is ultimately a step, a couple steps beyond rewriting a press release, which, which is, you know, kind of what I think a lot of news organizations end up doing. 
We really are looking for enterprise stories, and we really are looking for stories that allow us to tell a larger, a larger story. What, what is an enterprise story? Enterprise story is one that you go out and find. Oh, you know, fine. Yeah. Um, you know, we are trying to, to reveal and to educate um, both in equal measure, ideally. Uh, and so we approach our, our stories from, from that perspective, you know, really trying to do our best to, to not hold back, not back down, but to approach stories with compassion. And, 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 you know, our team is really, really, really talented and really thoughtful in the way they do things. And we, um, we work hard to ensure that that you know our our work is not only relevant but also as revealing as possible because because news in its sort of con- constricting shrinking <laughs> reality um, now has more to cover. Each journalist is now responsible for more, and we see that with the sale of the UT and you know our our one of our former editors just freelanced a piece for us about what's been going on at the UT. And it's, it's a kind of terrifying reality. You know, it was recently bought by a hedge fund um, uh, it, that has had has a, a sordid past. <laughs> has a long track record <laughs> um, in just kind of slashing and burning at news organizations and reducing them to kind of a, a shell of themselves. And some of that is, has already happened. Um, but in that new paradigm, especially in San Diego, it, it's more important than ever to to uh, have news organizations that really, you know, kind of give a shit and, and really um, work hard to, to reveal and, and, and uh, get people information that they wouldn't otherwise have. So how did you get into writing about education primarily? Yeah, um, I, you know, it, it's funny in the same way that I that I never really imagined myself to be a journalist before the opportunity presented itself. I, I hadn't really imagined myself as an education reporter. Um, you know, when I when my internship was finishing up, I had a really great experience. I'd loved the people that I'd worked with, and there were a couple open jobs at Voice, and I applied for both. And ultimately, they hired me to uh, to report on education. And it's been it's been a big uh, you know, learning curve. <laughs> um, it's, it's really been, uh, something that you start to realize very quickly, just how vital, you know, really thoughtful and in-depth education reporting is. I mean, this is, this is, this is how we prepare kids. This is how we prepare our next generation. And so being able to hold people accountable when they're, when they're not doing, you know, their, the best job they can be, uh, being able to shine a light on those who are working hard, it, it's, it's really, really vital. And so while I didn't necessarily imagine myself to report on education, I so quickly realized just the importance of it. And, and it's, been, it's been an ex- incredibly exciting uh, you know, experience. There are no shortage of stories in the education world. How do you walk that line? Maybe it's not really a line. I see it in my head, though between being true to the tagline of, in, of investigative jur- journalism. I think when people hear investigative, they automatically default to negative, hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, the IRS doesn't come to investigate because they want to <laughs> highlight the fact that you've been a really good taxpayer, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think in the public mind, there's that. Mm-hmm. And then you're writing about a sector that 
historically, although I think COVID put some dents in it, but historically when people think about educators, they think uh, hardworking, uh, committed to the future generation, all those things you said, mm-hmm. um, probably not the ones that you want to be banging on really hard with investigations. <laughs> you yeah. also talked about shining a positive light on things. So mm-hmm. talk to me about that that whole dynamic and how you see it. Because eventually, if you keep banging on people, they'll just stop answering your calls. You know, and that's it's, that's very true. And it's it's a tough line to walk, right? I mean, I, I, I often feel like um, there are plenty of journalists who are willing to write, you know, the heartwarming stories. Uh, but there are fewer journalists who are, like you said, willing to, to, you know, take a harder line with people who historically have had so much goodwill for, and for good reason, you know? Um, but ultimately I, I do feel like, um, you know, inundating a reader in, in only negative content doesn't help your content, your news, your, your articles, uh, uh, seep in any, anymore you know you need both examples of bad behavior and examples of good behavior um, both of those things are, are are super important when it comes to to um, creating the kind of narratives and, and and writing the kind of news that people will want to keep returning to you know it's it's all bad news all the time doesn't make somebody want to read more although Bad news is oftentimes, in my perspective, what, what is a little more important. You know, again, there's no shortage of, of, of TV news stations or, or other you know news uh, gatherers that are that are that are um, willing to go and and you know show kids getting free lunchboxes or you know I don't know what it is. Um, so finding that balance, it's 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 tough. But I think ultimately you need to be able to find something that that cuts against what, what you've already been reporting, you know? So for example, I've done a lot of reporting in recent months about uh, chronic absenteeism. Yeah, which I've, is, I've followed those. You've done a really good job. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's been, it's been one of those things that, you know, there's been a lot of hair on fire coverage about test scores, but chronic absenteeism really is, is, is upstream of all of that. You know, uh, there are no good test scores if kids are missing 30, 40, 50% of, of, of days in the school. Or, or if there are 30 to 40 or 50% of kids missing at least 10% of days in the school, that's, that's, um, that's just not possible, right? And so uh, through that, I, I did a lot of coverage about how this is what our, what, this is what our hair really should be on fire about uh, chronic absenteeism. Um, and so that included stories about how it's really bad with the youngest kids, which is especially concerning because at, in those years they're building kind of the foundations of, of their knowledge base that, that will, they will go on to use for the rest of their lives. Um, and I did stories about how, like with most things in education, um, chronic absenteeism isn't distributed equally, right? Uh, the, the students who have the least, the communities that have the least who are, who are often, who are the most poor, frankly, are, are the ones who are most affected by chronic absenteeism. And these are all, these are all stories that don't necessarily make you want to, you know, skip down the block. Um, but I ended up finding and connecting with educators at uh, Horton Elementary over in Southeast San Diego and writing a story about all of the myriad ways that they are trying to push back against chronic absenteeism. And so that includes 
all of these events in school to make kids excited to come. That includes a robust program of reaching out to parents and, and communicating with them. That includes educating them about the effects of chronic absenteeism and what chronic absenteeism really means. And they've had some success. I mean, it's, it's, it's slow success that in it's their, their, uh, issue with chronic absenteeism was a really significant one. And so it, it, you only make progress with, by chipping away at it. And so that for me was a positive story that, that offered, you know, a, a way forward through one of these really negative stories that I've been reporting for a while. It strikes me as ironic and yeah, I guess sadly ironic, and it applies it here at Albert Einstein Academies too, but the solutions are they're simple con- uh, conceptually, but they're really complicated and difficult to implement. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, you're looking at increasing connection with mm-hmm. families. Mm-hmm. And I guess the sad part is that we've been operating in, under this assumption as long as the kids were showing up at school, you know, we, schools are getting funded and mm-hmm. there at least there's at least a kid there to take a test. Mm-hmm. But we've been kind of operating under the assumption or never even really thought about whether those families are really authentically connected to their schools. So I think now that we've gone through the pandemic and then you're seeing coming out of it, wow, it's like the tide's gone out and you see who's wearing what bathing suit and what, you know, and you're like, okay, so these are families that needed a lot of support prior. They were getting their kids to school, but maybe that connection wasn't there. Now afterwards, they're just dealing with trying to survive. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone who wakes up and says, I want to screw the school system over and just not send my kids to school today. Or, or screw my, my kids' future over. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not doing that, right? Absolutely there's, not. The dynamics are complicated, and, and I think the heartening piece is that we're all <clears throat> trying to find ways to engage with families and kids on a really case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that it continues even after chronic absenteeism is reversed. You know, I, I I agree with pretty much everything you've said, right? When it comes to to education, so many of the of the right solutions are the ones that feel like common sense, but common sense is often super expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, employing family services, uh, you know, folks to to go out and and meet with parents to to go out and talk to families that's not cheap. And as you said. Every student who's chronically absent, every student who's anything, every student has an incredibly different story. Yeah. They're all, you know, uh, they all don't come to school for different reasons. They all come to school for different reasons. Um, but one thing that is true is that if they don't feel connected to the school, if they don't feel like there's somebody there who's bummed when they're not there, yeah. uh, they're less likely to come. You know, that was one of the interesting things um, that I that I saw when I spoke to uh, Danielle Garanani, the the principal at Horton, and, and some of her staff, you know, they they went so far as to have have students write um, notes to their classmates. So when a kid missed a day at school, they would come back the next day, and there would be a note from one of their classmates saying, "Hey, I missed you. Like, I'm I'm happy you're back today." I mean, it's those kinds of small things that, yeah. that feel small, or I mean, maybe it may look small, but yeah. but aren't small at all. Um, and as you said, you know, COVID had, like it did with every aspect, every facet of education, COVID had this super outsized effect. It, it basically tripled chronic absenteeism everywhere. Yeah. And that that is <laughs> really bad. <laughs> that's that's really not good. Um, and, you know, like I was talking about earlier, there, there 
the tripling doesn't mean that every school ends up in the same place. In places like La Jolla, maybe it tripled and went from 3 or 4% to 12%. In places like Rodriguez Elementary over in Logan Heights, it tripled from 24% to 76%. Yeah. Yeah. 76% of kids yeah. at that school were chronically absent. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, these, these sorts of common sense solutions, they, 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 they work over time. But it's not easy, no. as you said. It's not easy. It's not cheap, and it takes a real, real deep commitment um, from educators, from parents, um, who both to learn, but but also to implement those things every day. And and so ultimately, I I I think that that reversing chronic absenteeism is something that could happen conceivably i mean even before the pandemic there were people who were super freaked out about this the county uh, office of education had created um essentially a task force yeah. a network of schools called improving chronic absenteeism network because already before the pandemic um th there were folks who were noticing these disparities noticing these high levels of comparatively <laughs> high levels yeah. of chronic absenteeism and and saying we have to take uh you know action on this and now the, the problem is only, you know, just frighteningly more acute. And um, it's it's going to take a lot of time. And, and I don't know, personally, I don't know that we're ever going to see the same levels of chronic absenteeism as before the pandemic, at least, at least for, you know, some years. I mean, you have to think about the fact that there were kids who were who were learning from, you know, in front of their computers for a number of years. I mean, that especially for kids who were just coming into school. I mean, we may see the effects of that throughout their whole educational career. And that's that's something that we really need to grapple with. And we really, really need to start figuring out how to make kids understand that they're wanted and they're needed. It's not just about educational bottom lines, yeah. although that certainly is, you know, is at play here. Uh, schools, districts lose out on money when kids don't show up. But the real four alarm fire is what's going to happen to those kids. And there's been talk politically i'm not I, it may be dead on arrival in most conversations but talk about california shifting the funding mm -hmm. model from attendance based to enrollment based mm -hmm. or some hybrid thereof mm. even if that were to happen that still doesn't address the services required to really yeah. keep those connections yeah with families and i would posit too that it's not just hiring additional staff it's really a a paradigm shift in the way that we as educators think about our families as mm. partners yeah. and engage with, with them. And um, are we putting up walls? Are we hiding behind a bunch of acronyms? Are we hiding behind yeah. uh, lingo or jargon rather? Are we hiding behind um, languages, right? Mm -hmm. just, there's not enough translated into Spanish or whatever the language is. Yeah. Are we hiding behind the fact that we're the ones with the quote unquote knowledge and experience and we are the quote professionals. Mm -hmm. And so we keep all of those different barriers, both seen and unseen uh, to keep the caste system in place. Uh, or are we doing something different? Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe financial uh, realities are going to force entities to change. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing task forces pop up. We, we've got a working group on that. We've got um, community coordinator now at Einstein, and a portion of her job is to engage with, with families. We've mm -hmm. got vans that 
we've got a van we go pick kids up in the morning sometimes just to drive them two blocks yeah because it's really not the complication of i can't get to school because it's two blocks away but i've already been absent for so long that the psychological barrier to get back in it yeah i mean why do gyms make so much money because they enroll a bunch of people in january every year (laughs) and then by march they're not going they can over enroll the gym yeah people stop going and then like i'm not going in in July, I'm ashamed to even see my trainer, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, that's a, uh, what you just said, I think is important. You know, they're, they're, what's so strange about chronic absenteeism pre and, co- and post COVID is that so much, so many kids are, are absent for the same reasons that they were before the pandemic. It's, it's um, lack of transportation. You know, at Horton, for example, there was, there was a student who, um, who, who, who didn't come very often because she was scared about the walk from her home to school. Uh, it's, it's that, again, you know, that lack of connection. I mean, you can imagine, I'm sure, being a kid who misses a week or two, the last thing I would want to do is come back in and have no idea what the hell is going on in class. Yeah. That sounds incredibly unappetizing. It does. <laughs> what, what, what have you seen at, at Albert Einstein? I mean, what, what, what has this, what I've called freely a crisis looked like for, for, for your schools? Yeah, we, prior to COVID, we built our budgets around 97.5% uh, average daily attendance. Uh-huh. That had been based on 20 years almost of longitudinal experience, and yeah. there were years we hit 98. Wow. So that was a little bit of found money. <laughs> and then when Omicron hit, we were struggling to break 90%. We were in like the 86, 87 for a while. And then even after we got to the point of kind of quasi all clear COVID, and the reason I say quasi is because the public health restrictions stayed in place. And even after they were lifted, they stayed in place mentally. So when kids had a little bit of a tickle in the throat or some sniffles, Parents may or may not even communicate with school. They just kept the kid home. Yeah. So there was that. That was that hangover that endured. Mm-hmm. But we struggled last school year, um, the 22-23 academic year. Yeah, I mean, I think we we lost probably half a million dollars or so in funding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not a business. We need the money so that we can meet the needs of kids. Yeah. And having 30 kids in a classroom or 25 or 22 – we still need to pay the teacher to teach those kids. Mm-hmm. Those costs don't go down, yeah. right? So it's been a fiscal impact. I think there's this, the psychological impact still remains to be to be measured. I don't know if it'll ever be accurately measured, but it's this, I, I, I see it as almost like the stretching of the ligaments, you know, like you, you, you get injured in sports or something and Mm -hmm. the ligaments get stretched out and then are they ever going to go back to exactly how they were before? Mm. And that was dependent on what neighborhood folks were in, uh, what kind of a background they come from. But for the first time ever, certainly in my lifetime, school started to feel like it was an optional thing. Mm. And there was very little consequence to someone not coming, at least from in the eyes of parents who are already working two and three jobs, and sometimes they're, they're grandparents, right? So they're living with grandparents. There's all those different socioeconomic factors. Yeah, um, yeah. We had to, we downgraded our target attendance rate 
um, at least for budgeting purposes, because yeah. money doesn't come based on your dreams. I'd still like to be 98% or more. Mm -hmm. um, but I think from a fabric of the organization standpoint, um, it's been a challenge because of that very reason where you have kids who just feel like they're drifting. Yeah. Um, and whether that's a direct cause of rising uh, anxiety among students, um, you know, uh, uh, talk of, you know, self-harm and all those pieces, mm -hmm. whether that's connected, yeah. um, that isolation, um, that those of us who are in positions of, of, authority and power and uh, jobs where we could come back and be in person now and, and kind of collectively block some of the COVID out of our minds. I don't think our kids are doing that still, right? They're still living with that unease that's just kind of persisting. I mean, I, I think that, I think that they will for some time. Yeah. I, th this isn't something that just goes away. This is something that you slowly, learn to live with and you slowly grow out of but but uh, the the effect of of covid on on everybody i mean yeah. kids in particular because they they are are the most kind of at their most impressionable they are they are growing they are still formulating their view of the world and, and their understanding of the world and of themselves um but everybody <laughs> i mean i i know folks who are just not the same uh, f from where they were before the pandemic. And, and that is, that is again, something that, that we're really going to have to grapple with. And I, I don't know necessarily that, that, that we've done a very good job of it. It's interesting for me to reflect on the fact that we kind of touched on it a couple minutes ago, but mm -hmm. historically teachers have been held in really positive, yeah. uh, been accorded a positive status in society. You know, when they ask, like, they do these surveys, like, where do politicians fall? Where do lawyers <laughs> fall? Where th those two never really ranked that high. Mm -hmm. uh, but teachers have historically been in in positions of, uh, from the left and the right, mm -hmm. seen as just, you know, it's a giving profession. It's a noble profession. Perhaps school administrators, maybe not so much. I don't know. I'd have to go back in and parse it. But <laughs> for the first time in my memory, that kind of got thrown out. I mean, there were attacks on teachers as being, you know, as people going as far as to say that they were lazy for yeah. staying home, yeah. depending on whether you were in a red or blue pocket, depending on the culture wars and all those pieces. Mm -hmm. um, I think for the first time, people who, families who had been historically kind of marginalized, whether it was because they were working all day or whether whatever the barriers were, they were tuning in along with their students to Zoom calls and seeing what was, what was and was not happening in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Let's just face it, there was a wide range of what was happening in classrooms on Zoom, mm -hmm. from really effective to really ineffective. Yeah. And we've all, you could, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. And so I think that had the effect of people going, wow, maybe, you know, it's ripping some of the cover off of the baseball a little bit and looking, mm -hmm. Uns, you know, pulling the twine and going, wow, there's more here. Like what has been happening in, in education? And so I think that my observation is that, you know, that the, the pandemic in general really bruised people. Yes. And I don't think we're back to 
pre-COVID in terms of healing that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we can look at the graduate schools of education, their enrollment's way down. Um, You can look at the marketplace when you advertise for a teaching position. Um, There are no applicants. That's not just in the charter world. That's everywhere. Mm -hmm. You see districts paying signing bonuses. Go to a hiring fair, get a job that day. Like that never happened before. Yeah. So there's this, I think it's, it's hard to just look at one piece of it, but I've appreciated voice of San Diego's reporting on that. Um, our new work on the chronic absenteeism. Other is, are there other stories in education that you've done? I know you've done a lot in a very short amount of time, so that's commendable. Other areas that excite you uh, that you've written about. Yeah, I, I mean, first, if I can go back to to that, I think I, I think that teachers, educators are are in a very very strange time right now. Um, they're kind of stuck in this vice mm. between politics and curriculum, right? Mm. And I think folks had complaints about both of those things. Some may be fair, some maybe not so fair. Um, you know, we we have we have seen a huge realignment in kind of the reading wars phonics versus whole whole language kind of stuff and that that was i know something that was really that that when parents saw what what their kids were being taught over over the pandemic that that's an example of of the of a lot of folks saying hey you're not like actually teaching my kid to read right now right <laughs> you're you're showing them some pictures right and, and blah 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 and so that that falls into the the, mm. the category of stuff that i think is pretty fair mm. that folk that that forced i think a reckoning um with the realities of how we teach our kids, the arguably most fundamental and important skill of reading, um, and I, I think that that maybe we're we're better off for that sort of realization, hmm. right? And it's unfortunate that that teachers have, you know, been fallen on 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 the attacked side of that. But then there are other elements, like I've I've done some reporting on sort of the culture wars and the politics and and kind of this this cultural panic that's existed, you know, uh, you see it every day at, at some school, at some school board meetings, you see it, it, it every day in some school libraries where there are folks, you know, with signs yelling about whether it's, it's COVID vaccination stuff or, or, you know, this book is too gay or whatever. Um, and that may be <laughs> in my perspective, um, maybe fall on the less fair side, but regardless of what it is, teachers are in the middle of this and, they realized, I think, over the pandemic that it is a very, very, very hard time to be a teacher. And and we're in for trouble if that continues. We're in for trouble if that perception continues um, because it's not really far from reality. We saw a wave of, of, of resignations and retirements, a wave of people saying, hey, teaching is just not for me anymore. You know, I don't want to be on the front lines of these <laughs> these various culture wars. Um and so that's that's difficult. Uh, you know, I, I I've written some stuff about that, but I've tried to to stay away from some of it simply because I think that that what voice really offers is um, is a view into more systemic issues. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that bigotry or culture wars are not a systemic issue. I, th- I think they are and I think they're important to cover. Um, but but for me, you know, the things that that allow us <clears throat> A deeper view and, and, and a peek inside of, of, of schools is is what attracts me more, you know. So so for me, um, I really have have 
focused a lot on on inequities mm -hmm. in education. You know, we we spoke a bit earlier about how chronic absenteeism uh, basically is. is <laughs> Is is very much um, you know a function of, of poverty, um, but it's not the only educational metric, as I'm sure you know. Essentially, everything in education is based on poverty. If you show me you know a, re, a, a zip code's income level, I can pretty much tell you whether or not those test what those <laughs> test scores are going to look like. Yeah, I had a, a mentor who tongue in cheek said, "It's interesting that all the brightest kids in California live within." One mile of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> it's it it is interesting, yeah. Um, it's you know we we education has always been viewed sort of as the great equalizer, uh, and I think that that over the years we've seen that that is a bit of a fantasy, unfortunately. You know, I I think that education is vital, and for some kids, it can offer a step up into whether it is a level of intellect or a socio-demographic, you know, uh, level that their parents didn't have access to. But, but education is, at its core, very unequal. You know, poverty dictates almost everything. Poverty and demographics dictate almost everything. And that is, that is a harsh reality that that I feel like more people have 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 been willing to face, but one that that still, I think doesn't. People don't talk about enough, and and so that's that's some of what I've I've tried to do. Whether that's you know in, in reporting that 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 talks about chronic absenteeism and the way it affects some kids more, or whether it talks about, you know, I did this I did this one piece that, just was basically a series of graphs, right? These kind of scatter plots that showed. Um, the relationship between test scores and free and reduced price meal percentages, test scores between um, uh, 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 demographics. Uh, and, and the one thing that you see is that, <laughs> is that all of these things are correlated very closely, right? Um, you know, I did another, another piece recently about inequities in suspension rates um, across, across schools and demographics. And, and I think that, that, we can only really start to succeed with all kids when, mm. when we really focus on the kids who are struggling the most. You know, the kids who don't necessarily, their parents don't have funds to, to, to help them get an AP tutor, don't have, have funds to, to necessarily have a car to pick them up. They are working two jobs. I mean, these, these are the kids whose help, who, we, who most need help and, and who we most desperately need to help. It's so interesting that you know, we, we strive to measure everything, right? And mm -hmm. I've, I've appreciated your stories. Uh, I've looked, I think, I'm, I know Voice of San Diego, I don't know if it was you, but did like a regression analysis of trying to predict based on free and reduced percentages mm -hmm. where, this, where schools should, I guess in quotations, fall yeah. in terms of achievement. And then you'd look at outliers on that, right? Yeah. Above yeah. and below that mm -hmm. line. Um, and th that those are all. That's really important to think about. Then I also think about things like when you talk about suspension and expulsion, the things that never get me measured, right? So mm -hmm. the soft suspensions and expulsions, right? The times that an administrator counsels a parent to take their kid home mm -hmm. for two, three days. They need to cool off. They need this. Yeah. They need that. You know what? We're not going to go through with this, but they need to. And you can't 
tell me that that doesn't happen mm-hmm. all over charter non charter yeah it does um you can't tell me that a district circular or a charter school policy or protocol internally can entirely prevent that mm-hmm. right and that's the the squishy soft human areas where if our mindset doesn't change we'll continue to perpetrate that stuff yeah right you get someone who doesn't speak english you've got a a student who has special needs all these different pieces and the parents are just struggling to do anything and everything they can mm-hmm. and an administrator in a suit says you know what how about let's just come back next week and we'll talk about this yeah. right now, now juniors missed two three four days of school doesn't show up anywhere as anything other than he just wasn't there or she wasn't there for three four days yeah. and we're just kicking this can down the road mm-hmm. um so and, and that's that's really tough right you it, can you can you can implement policies yeah uh, but <laughs> no policy means a damn if, if people aren't following it. And, and it's very, very, very difficult to get, get everybody on the same page. I mean, just to use uh, San Diego Unified as an example, I mean, uh, nearly 200 schools, I mean, 100,000 students, thousands of employees. I mean, how do you, how do you steer a ship that big? It, it, to me, it sounds impossible. You know, I do not envy... Uh, Superintendent Lamont Jackson, because that job <laughs> sounds terrifying. Yeah. Um, but, but again, trying to get everybody to walk in a line in that way, it's it it sounds incredibly difficult. I, I what a former superintendent, um, Bill Koba, who's been mm-hmm. a few superintendents ago. I remember he told me, you know, our challenge is to try to get all employees of the district to see themselves as part of a team at their school site or wherever they are and also at the district level yeah and that's that didactic that's super challenging yeah right it's the same i think that that you feel in a corporation like how like even someone in a starbucks right Mm -hmm. so in a perfect world yeah they 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 it's easier for them to feel connection to their customers who come every day and order the same thing and they rely on that for tips and the whole thing but then also to understand and embrace kind of the ethos of the entire corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Well, I think the difficulty with that kind of stuff is is at a school site, you're asking them to identify with people, right? Yeah. They know... Miss Jenkins knows, you know, Mr. Howard, who teaches across the way. They know, like, little Jimmy, who's in their first period class. But when it comes to a district, they're being asked to identify with an entity. An entity. And that, I think, is incredibly difficult. It, I'm listening to, this is just a uh, rabbit hole, but that's kind of how my, na- my brain works sometimes, but I'm listening to Sapiens. Okay. Uh, yeah. And um, the author uh, talks about the creation of myths, mm-hmm. um, that Homo sapiens over time have, create, have created myths. One of the myths he talks about is the LLC, right? The Limited Liability Corporation. <laughs> it's a it's a legal contract, but it's it's just an idea, mm-hmm. right? It means you can do certain things, and and that entity can, is can be held liable for certain things, but not other things. Um, and so I think about myths in terms of like an organization's mission and vision too, mm-hmm. like even Voice of San Diego, Albert Einstein Academies, right? Yeah. Like it takes a lot of work to have people believe in it and make it real in the real world yes. and concrete, right? Yes. Otherwise it's just like, okay, it's it's on this wall and going through my daily life, I'm not really thinking about it, yeah. you know? And that's really the challenge here. This 
tough thing in education is we're talking about humans. Yes. Right. And lives that, that, you know, are being changed are going to change whether we change them in, for positive or not so positive reasons. Yeah. 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 You, you, you're right. And so, I mean, ultimately I, I think that that's why it's so, 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 so vital to get people walking in that line and, and and to get people who really care about walking in that line. Right. And that's not to say that you should have an unthinking, you know, uh, um, uh, in, in group of followers teaching kids. Um, but you need folks who really, 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 really care. Where do you see charter schools in this whole mix? Uh, we've, charter schools have now been around uh, for uh, 32 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember because I'm one of the the early um, the OGs, to, to for lack of a better term. Um, I remember when charter schools were really the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, no credentials needed, no college degree needed to teach all these things. Yeah. And over time, regulations have come into place. The California Commission on Teacher Credentialing, and I know that there are analogous situations around the country with charters mm-hmm. um, to where now, you know, three decades, it's not really this it's it, i mean it's it's part of the foundation mm-hmm. of education yeah. um where do they fit in for you in the way you conceive of education when you're thinking about a story are you just are you thinking like in your case San Diego unified in general or are you thinking well traditional district schools could it look different in charters like share some of your insight on that yeah so i i you know i actually i went to both uh, I went to, to tr- traditional uh, public schools. I went to magnet schools. I went to San Diego Unified schools. I went to, as you mentioned earlier, I graduated from Helix over in La Mesa, uh, which is a charter school. Um, and, and and I think that there has long been this tension, seems like a too gentle of a word, between you know the traditional public <laughs> and charter schools. Um, and, and I think San Diego Unified itself has has demonstrated that, again, Tension seems to be too kind of a word that that tension between what charter schools represent and 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 um, within the educational context, and and I think at their best, uh, charter schools are sort of these these laboratories of education, and I think that there there is a great um, potential to that, but but with any entity it, it, it's it's important to ensure that there are some levels of standards and and you know the wild west approach can offer some some leeway when it comes to innovation it can it can allow for some you know experimentation but but at the same time regulation kind of stops um these sort of gross oversteps that that can occur uh, in that kind of wild west area. So, so I think that we're we're still trying to to find that balance between public and charter schools. For, for many years, um, one of the defining characteristics of charter schools seemed to be that they were not unionized, right? In San Diego, we've seen kind of a wave of these unionizations. High Tech High, most recently, uh, being you know a huge charter network, and um, you know, I, I think my, my hope is that is that some of this allows us to to put the contentious union aspect aside and just focus on what charter schools should be, which again are places that allow for the the testing and the experimentation uh, uh, in education and allow for the potential you know creation of new 
learning and teaching paradigms. And, and so I, I hope that that for, you know, I, I, when I went to Helix, I, I enjoyed my experience. I, I don't know that I felt that there was much of a difference <laughs> between the public schools that I went to before and, and, and that charter school. Um, but I, I, I do hope, and especially for kids who've long attended um, schools that have, that have, have been underperforming, um, I, you know, Gompers comes to mind as a school that, that, that a lot of kids in Southeast have, have flocked to because they felt their, their local public schools are, are not, are not good, frankly. Um, and there are good things and bad things, right? The, the more, uh, kids from families who are connected and, and who even know what the hell a charter school is, um, leave those public schools. There is that kind of brain drain. But at the same time, it's giving kids opportunities that they may not have had otherwise. Um, and so I'm, I, at this point, I'm, I'm still fairly agnostic when it comes to charter schools. But I, but I do hope that um, you know, they offer the opportunity to, to, to create these new learning experiences that, that then maybe can seep into, into public schools. So what kind of challenges have you faced in your career um, it's a nascent career, but you've accomplished a lot in a short amount of time. And history was kind to you too, right? In terms yeah. of, well, history wasn't kind to you. Uh, world, world events were not kind to your music career. <laughs> my um, music career wasn't kind to my music career. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but you've been able to report on really compelling topics in a really short amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what kind of challenges do you face as a young guy um, at the start of a career on the precipice of who the hell knows what in 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 the in reporting right yeah. uh, in in uh, journalism, which seems like the last twenty years have just been a precipice, right? Um, yeah. And so, how do you think about your work and make sure that you can do what you need to do? Because mm -hmm. I'm, I'd imagine like there's times when doors get closed on you or people don't want to take your call or mm -hmm. they think you're not experienced or you weren't an educator first or you mm -hmm. didn't work for the AP. So what challenges have you faced and how do you, how do you get past those? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I mean, becoming a, a, a journalist and nowadays it feels <laughs> a bit like stepping on a sinking ship, right? Um, it, it looks pretty bleak out there. Um, but ultimately what I think guides me has been the you know i i worked i worked shit jobs my whole life i worked for minimum wage i worked in jobs where people just didn't view me as a human mm. um I, I i always sort of struggled to make ends meet and the one thing i was hoping i, I was not expecting to struggle to make ends meet any less but i was hoping to do so do so in a way that that felt more impactful hmm. right and so i i've i've carried that as i've as i've come into into journalism you know i i've i've struggled and i think that allows me to find stories that maybe others haven't thought about um and 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 the challenges that that i've faced really have have been a, have have really been i think adjusting the way i think and adjusting myself to this new world of journalism i mean it, it it is very much a sort of um uh, a sort of calling and and it is not so much a career 
I, mm. although clearly it is, but but it it requires a dedication and requires a degree of of um, you know kind of being on twenty four seven that is that is difficult to overstate, um, and, and so adjusting to that has been tough. Um, I I think that while early on I I was I mean, when I went back to college, when I went back to community college, city college, I, 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 I um, <laughs> was really, really, I really struggled with sort of imposter syndrome and feeling um, like, man, I'm going to be the weird old dude in all these classes, right? Um, and, and it was funny because coming out of music, imposter syndrome was always something I struggled with as well. It, it's, it's that thing like, you know, you go somewhere new, but you're still you kind of thing. Um, and the one thing that I've, I've felt has helped is just to work as hard as you can. I mean, if you are working as hard as you can, people just have to take you seriously. And so there certainly has been, has been some, um, some adjustment to that and some, some insecurity and some self-consciousness. Um, but, if if i my my perspective has just been if i keep grinding if I, if i you know beat the wheels off of all this if i if i make sure that i am the one that's working harder than anyone else in this room working harder on this beat than than any other journalist in san diego and that's not to say that i am <laughs> the other education journalists in san diego are quite great um th- then you know not only will will they take me seriously but more importantly i'll take myself seriously um, and so that, that's been, that's, I think been the biggest, well, you know what, I also have another just <laughs> pragmatic challenge, which is I'm still in school. Um, I'm trying, I'm about semester and a half away from finishing my bachelor's degree, wow. which, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. It's only taken what, 15 years. Um, and so that's been, that's been quite difficult, uh, basically, basically working two jobs, um, school and work and that so that just on like a um, uh, just a very real level god I cannot wait to be done with school right. <laughs> yeah they say when if you need something done give it to a busy person there you go right yeah. people learn to prioritize and manage their time but sometimes yeah time is Sometimes it, we wish we had a uh, time manufacturing machine. And oh, for sure. Trust me, I've been around long enough to tell you it ain't going to happen. <laughs> and that's that's one thing that's been interesting too. You know, I've always been, I've always been busy. Um, you know, working two jobs at a time, uh, playing in multiple bands, blah 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 blah. Uh, b- but this has always felt like a different kind of busy. You know, one one if if you're if you're late to your job you know, working at the music venue, it's like, okay, oh, well, <laughs> if you're late to, to, uh, you know, cover an event or meet a source or, or whatever it is that, that feels a lot worse. That's just not good. And so feeling more, um, feeling more, uh, a, a degree of responsibility that is, that is different than, than I used to feel has been, has been a big adjustment, you know, is AI going to change your job? Shit, I hope not. <laughs> do do you use it? I, I use it every day. Yeah. So I use ChatGPT and uh-huh. other tools. I'm playing around with some tools to translate translate my staff videos into mm. other languages. Um, I speak Spanish, but 
it's faster to have AI yeah. dub that in and actually does a fairly good job of ha having my voice. But mm -hmm. I'm think, looking at one in German and things. Wow. So I was so, just wondering because, you know, I know there was this article, there was an article in The Atlantic, I think, where the reporter yeah, had, yeah. I think he wrote, he wrote an article and then had AI write the same article and... And that was already six months ago, so it's gotten a lot better, the yeah. language learning models. You know, I, I, I have, I've, I've experimented a little bit with AI, but it's mostly just like, hey, write a, write a Blink-182 song about San Diego. <laughs> it's just like the silly stuff. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I'm just, I'm not sure. AI mm -hmm. is one of those things that seems impossible to predict. Every six months there's some just shocking leap forward in the way that that these these technologies work um i don't i don't use it personally in 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 work um but i i do know there are folks who do mm. and i i think one of the things that ai will never be able to to manage and i'll probably be proven wrong in like about a week but is is the the human aspect of reporting right, right. It, reporting is not finding some stats right. and writing a description of those i mean sometimes that's part of it but but reporting is about speaking to people and relating to them hopefully in person right? hopefully in person right. and empathizing with them and and then funneling that into something larger and, and trying to tell stories about about people and about the world and i don't necessarily know that AI will ever be able to convincingly um, have humanity. Mm. Feel emotion. Yeah. Feel fear, feel mm -hmm. love. Yeah. Because there's, there's, it's, uh, journalism is a sensitive job, you know, and, and, you know, I know that there's some folks who maybe use AI to write a headline or to write a subhead or to, to write a tweet about your story, right? That, that kind of stuff makes sense. Um, I feel like ChatGPT can probably do a pretty good job of summarizing things, yeah. you know, but but when it comes to to weaving together human stories and and coming up with a um, with a uh, um, you know a message and a narrative, I, I don't I don't necessarily know that that AI can do that simply because it all of the world that it's seen. It's experienced as 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 a technology and not yeah. as a person. Yeah, yeah. T time will tell, right? We'll, time. we'll see. And again, in a, in a week and a half, I'll be yeah. proven, I'll be proven <laughs> wrong. But but uh, yeah. So you have a newsletter called the Learning Curve. I do, which I've appreciated, and I encourage folks to sign up for for it. Um, does that encapsulate all the articles you write, and they just get dropped in there, and that's so that folks can kind of follow you in their mm -hmm. own separate feed, correct? Uh, so it's it's not every article I write. It's a special newsletter that comes out. Um, God, I hate that bi-weekly and bi-monthly mean the same thing and not the same thing. Um, <laughs> but it comes out every two weeks, uh, right. every every other Wednesday. And, um, you know, the, the, the goal with the newsletter is to be able to write uh, in a more conversational style, mm. to be able to write um, uh, about about things that maybe not be, maybe aren't a full story, but are still interesting and, and, and still allow you to, to have a, have a peek into the world of education journalism in San Diego. Um, and, and so, 
if I find like a little interesting thing, little interesting tidbit, that's that's generally where it goes. Um, and, and so it's um, you know I can't take credit for the name. It's been around for a couple education journalists before me, but it's been a really interesting and unique challenge. You know, and, and it and it keeps me on my toes. I know every every two weeks I gotta have a gotta have a newsletter out, um, and it's been fun to to. A lot. It allow, it's been fun because it allows me to experiment with different ways of writing. You know, I I I've written a couple that were super conversational. Uh, you know, I wrote one about one one in particular comes to mind about um, about the thing that scares me the most about mm-hmm. education journalism, which is the possibility, however remote or not, um, that I may one day have to cover a school shooting. Mm. Um, and you know, as, as a kid who grew up in San Diego, uh, you know, I was going to La Mesa middle and within a couple of weeks, there were two shootings at schools, not at all far from me in San Diego. Mm. And that possibility is one that genuinely is the most frightening thing I could ever imagine. Um, and so being able to put more of myself more of my own experiences and voice it to you know paper well, screen but I'll say paper because it sounds better um, it has been an interesting challenge and a, and a very cool opportunity how can we as educators prepare students for a career like yours you know it's a good question I I, I think I think that journalists aren't 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 people who know how to write an AP style. Mm. You know, ChatGPT can do that. Right. Journalists aren't 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 people who, you know, need to know um, a specific set of terminology. Um, ChatGPT can do that. <laughs> ChatGPT can do that. <laughs> journalists are 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 people who are critical thinkers and people who who. You know, in my opinion, I think often the best journalists are, are, are people who didn't expect to be journalists, but people who are inspired by stories, people who, who in whatever you know, way they can want to make the world a better place. And so I think that the best thing educators can do is to, to do their utmost to, to help kids grow into fully rounded human beings who have critical thinking, who have who have empathy, who have curiosity above all else, probably. Um, I, I mean, I think that is the key, right? Encouraging and instilling a degree of of a willingness to explore new things and a willingness to talk to people and 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 you know a a, a degree of care about this world because you know we talked a little bit about this earlier, but we're living in a time that's that's really frightening. You know, we are so polarized that the, the distance between people is so extreme. Um, and so I, I think part of what journalists need to do is to is to is to help people understand why they should care about the world around them and the people in it. And so allowing for kids to develop those kinds of base skills of critical thinking and curiosity and empathy um, are, are, are really the key foundations of what makes a good journalist or, or a writer even, you know, any, any kind of person who creates. 
you've been very generous with your time and appreciate it. I know you're, you, as you say, you work two full-time jobs. One, <laughs> one you get paid for, the other one you don't get paid for. One so, I pay for, the other one I, I, one I get paid by, the other one I pay for. There you know? go. There you go. Um, I have one last question, but before yeah. I get there, is there anything you'd like to add to today's conversation uh, that we haven't touched on that's maybe rattling around in your, in your journalist's head? You know, well, there is one thing I wanted to ask you. Yes. Which is... You're... That always makes me nervous because <laughs> I have a couple times... Actually, the last time that happened, a journalist asked me, so... Yeah, well... well I'll see what I can do. That's a compulsion. You know I, I control the editing here, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I'm curious as somebody who's been an educator for, what? 30 years. 30 years, yeah. yeah. Coming out of COVID, coming out of what is unquestionably the biggest shake up in you know education in the past i would say 50 years at least um what do you think is the most important thing for education journalists to be focusing on i think you touched on it when you talked about the inequities mm -hmm. covid brought that to the forefront mm -hmm. but we're gonna quickly fade have that fade away have covid fade away in our consciousness because we're so busy and we're all looking forward mm -hmm. and to not lose sight of of the inequities that exist and not and asking the hard questions about things like why is the chronic absenteeism 75 percent in in one school and in a region and you know 10 miles away it's at five percent yeah um I think we also need to continue to ask the hard questions around um, things like budget decisions. Mm -hmm. Especially now, as we're we're we got a cliff the, out there, dude, yeah, as and we're it's leaving the COVID funding era. We're yeah. sliding towards it. Yeah. Um, and to watch what happens with that and try to ask the proactive questions ahead of time. It's, mm -hmm. it's tough. They, you know, you're getting into organized labor. Mm -hmm. um, people don't want to poke that bear sometimes. No. Um, but, you know, so what's going to happen? So we've got, you're seeing 20% year-over-year increases sometimes in districts like LA Unified and mm -hmm. others. And I'm not saying that educators don't deserve to be paid for their work. It's important work. But it'd be great if these entities stayed around for another 20, 50, 100 years, right? Yeah. Instead of having to get bailed out by some other government entity. Mm -hmm. um, and we know in the charter world, that's a lot more acute because we don't have some of those, we don't have some of those abilities to, to um, have someone back us up if we can't manage our own money. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be a lot of questions to ask around you know, why did why was spending the way it was two years ago when everybody knew monies were one-time monies mm -hmm. and all these folks were hired and now going to see a bunch of pink slips. You're going to see that rolling through and to ask those questions. It's the question nobody wants to ask. It doesn't make me really popular, but is that model still the best model, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Last in, first out seniority that way i mean this makes this is probably why i don't get invited to a lot of happy hours but <laughs> but i mean it, you know is this the right way to go about it is mm -hmm. it the right way to go about it that the school that you mentioned that has 75 percent chronic absenteeism very often 
will be the least quote unquote desirable school for teachers in a district to work at. Mm-hmm. How does that go together? Like if you want to talk about equity and connection, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. this isn't a criticism of school districts or, you know, charter. We haven't figured it out in the charter world either. Yeah. Right. We don't oftentimes have union structures or constraints, but we're not doing an appreciably better job with, with ma- managing our budgets. Uh, we're not doing an appreciably better job with connecting to our, our least connected folks. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a, a lot of homeless, homelessness questions to be asked by yeah. education reporters. You know, the McKinney Bento Act um, defines homelessness much more broadly than the average yep. person carries around in their head as they drive by someone in a tent on the sidewalk. Which, which rightfully so. I mean, oh, totally yeah. rightfully so. Right, like y- you and me should try to function in our daily lives if we're on a different couch every night. Yeah, right, in a different house or mm-hmm. whatever, a trailer or whatever it is. So I think there's massive questions to be asked in that area, especially in a place like San Diego. Especially in a place yeah. like San Diego, with the challenges that we have with with uh, homeless populations and mm-hmm. how, you know, yeah, okay, so now that there's a camping ban, so now it's just you're seeing shifting migrations now. Go to the South Bay, go to yeah. Chula Vista, look on the off-ramps of the freeway, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because what, 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 we, what we're seeing, I mean, I think there's that, and then another area where it's, it's so fruitful is, and controversial is um, questions around restorative practices versus punitive practices mm-hmm. with students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also part of the culture war, right? Where you're yeah. seeing a backlash now where certain districts are like, no, we don't do anything restorative. We're going back to strict discipline. Yeah. The irony for me, and this also doesn't make me popular sometimes, but the irony for me is as adults, like in our workplace, there's not a single adult I've ever met who's like, I want a strict, I want, a, I want like a zero tolerance workplace mm-hmm. where if I arrive five minutes late, I get punished. <laughs> or if I have to take an extra sick day that I don't have, that I lose pay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist. Yeah. And it shouldn't exist in my, in my mind. But then when we get with kids, it's like they need to learn the discipline. They need yeah. this. They need that. There needs to be strict concert. I'm like, yeah. but you just wanted to take extra sick leave and you came in and had this very cogent argument about how you should have extra time because da, 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 mm-hmm. as, as humans and etc but with a 12 year old whose prefrontal cortex is like 12 years away from being fully formed <laughs> and they're dealing with all these challenges you know yeah. so i think that also gets back to the equity and the inequity yeah, conversation I, but your, your job is one reason i wanted to talk to you selfishly is because your job seems so exciting you know, you get to ask those tough questions and then you don't need to work in those places where you ask the questions, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, even this, you know, you were, you were talking about demographics and I, and when you said the word demographics, it flashed in my head because we recently had um, a, a professional development day and it was very fruitful and it was good. It was also kind of like an emotional rotor rooter. It stirred up a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. and it's okay, man. We got to talk about these things. But I recall the word demographics being thrown out a bunch of times, and so that can be something that we use because we go, yeah, we need to understand our student population. Okay, that's that's a fairly neutral interpretation of that. But then you can say, ever since the demographics changed, we have this challenge or that challenge. 
then you start to slide into ever since those kids or those mm -hmm. people or those families started to come. Mm -hmm. And look, we're, Einstein's not unique in that. That's all over the place, right? Demographic, the, the communities have shifted in San Diego and um, we still have a, a really uh, segregated city in a lot of ways, oh, yeah. right? Concentrations of, of these challenges in certain neighborhoods. And so, mm -hmm. man, you have a, you'll, you'll have articles to write for the rest of your time here in San Diego if, you, if you're courageous enough to bang on those doors and ask the questions. Yeah, that's, you know, all of those are fascinating. I think for me, the, the, the homelessness question is one that I, I've been fascinated with. You know, it, it, when we talk about the folks who have, have the least, <laughs> I mean, homeless folks are those folks, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's difficult to, to look at, at this city and look at the way people are struggling and not see it refracted everywhere else, not see it reflected in the way our schools are functioning, not see it reflected in, in, in the way our workplaces or government is functioning. And, um, and so it's, it, it is, you are right. It's a fascinating job that, that allows us to, to ask and every now and then get a little bit closer to an answer to some of these very, very hard questions. Um, and I, I appreciate you. I appreciate the invite, David. Yeah. I appreciate, you know, this time it's been, it's been lovely to talk to you. Yeah, it's, it's great. I feel like we could talk for hours. Yeah, I think so. I think we could. <laughs> I want to, I want to wrap with this question. Yeah. So you're given the opportunity to design a billboard for the five freeway that encapsulates your own view, your vision of the world, what you think needs to still be done in the world what's hopeful, what's dangerous, what's scary, whatever you want that billboard to say. Mm. It's not a Voice of San Diego billboard. <laughs> um, it's your own, and people are driving by at 60, 70 miles an hour. What does your billboard, billboard say to the world about what's most meaningful to you? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have answer right off the bat but but and it's okay if you don't i've had people not have one i've had people i'm curious what what what, what does your billboard say you, you must have thought about this i've thought about it a lot and my billboard kind of changes based on <laughs> what i'm experiencing at the time so yeah. that's another that's another thing okay, right? so, so today what's david's billboard look like i think mine would say something about um It would have some message about balance, about staying balanced. And I don't mean so much like work-life balance, but more balanced in terms of our reactions to things, our viewpoints. Um, I think I'm feeling recently that the extremes of any spectrum hmm. scare me. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's in the political sense, extreme far right or extreme far left. I don't think most of the work gets done on those two extremes. So it might be something mm -hmm. like stay balanced, stay balanced, stay in the middle because that's where the work gets done. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think mine may just say help, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can take that a couple different yeah. ways, right? Help each other, but also like help me, like please. help, <laughs> yeah. like could be any. Even if you put an exclamation point after it, that also has yeah. several different meanings, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think I think because you know I think this world we're living in is one that 
that that needs some help. I think that's a great place to end today's conversation. And thank you again um, for all the work you do for the reporting. I really look forward to reading your newsletter and the articles in Voice of San Diego. I appreciate um, that. And, you know, it's a tough job that you have. So um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, David. Next time we talk, we should do it with a beer in hand. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Superintendent's Hangout. You can follow me on Twitter at DVS1970. Please be sure to share this show with friends and family on social media and in the real world. Thank you to Brad Bacayal for editing and production assistance and to Tina Royster for scheduling and logistics. Thanks for hanging out and have a great day.